Well, happy Easter, church family. And if you are a visitor here with us this morning, happy Easter to you. This is what we celebrate today. That Christ is risen from the grave and he is resurrecting us. And so we hear Josh's story and it's an amazing story. That's what we are about as a church, seeing Jesus transform lives for his glory. And we're going to see that today in Matthew 28. So if you have a copy of God's Word, and I hope that you brought one with you today, we'll be in Matthew 28. Now this is a familiar story for many of us, but what I want us to do today is we look at this passage to see the resurrection, but to see how it applies to us. This isn't just a distant story in the past. It's certainly not a fairy tale. It is a moment in time where Christ defeated the grave. So this is going to be encouraging for us. So look, starting in verse 1 of Matthew 28. Matthew 28, verse 1. The word of the Lord says this. Now after the Sabbath, towards the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing was white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay, and go quickly and tell the disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See as I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet, and they worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, don't be afraid. Go tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers. And they said, tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while you were asleep. And if it comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. The story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain of which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw them, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Pray with me. Father, we ask that this morning you would give us grace, that you would give us strength, that you would give us joy, Lord, would you give us belief in you today? As we open up your word, would you create within us an intense curiosity, an interest about what it is that we just read? And Lord, would you level every obstacle to our belief today? Would you help us to see our drastic need for you, our drastic need for the resurrection? For one day we will die. 
even though we don't want to. But Lord, today we remember that there is one, the one who came, the one who died, the one who rose again, that offers us joy and forgiveness. And so Spirit, would you speak to us and remove all distractions from our mind that we would clearly hear what you desire for us to hear today. And if you would be so bold this morning, let me give you just a moment of silence to pray something similar, that God would remove distractions and speak to your heart today. Would you pray to him in the silence of this moment now? Pray also for me as I unpack the greatest time in the history of humanity this morning. Pray for me. Lord Jesus, open up our eyes to behold wondrous things from your word. May we delight in them to the glory of your great name. And it's in that great name that we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, well, for those of you that call Wes Cabarrus home, we've been going through this series called Prophets, Priests, and Kings. We've been looking in the Old Testament and the book of 1 Samuel, and we have been looking at prophets, priests, and kings. And today what I want us to see are two different kings, two different kings, and as we look at these two different kings, it's going to apply to us in very tangible ways, very practical ways. And the first king that I want us to see from this passage, passage today is the king of terror. The king of terror. Now we're going to see two kings, and these kings are vastly different kings. Vastly different. But the first one that we find is the king of terror. And you might be thinking, king of terror? What are you talking about? Like this is Easter. This is supposed to be happiness and joy and bunnies and eggs and candy. Well, if we don't first grasp the king of terror and understand this, we'll never understand the joy that waits us in Jesus Christ. See, the first Easter, the first Easter, the first Resurrection Sunday doesn't start with joy and excitement and happiness. It starts with the deep weight of death. Did you see that in verse 1? You've got Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. You have two Marys who are going to see the tomb. Matthew 28 starts with the sobering reminder that Jesus is dead. He has been brutally crucified and placed in the tomb. And as the Marys come to the tomb that Sunday morning, they're not coming with joy and excitement and happiness. They're coming to pay their respects. The other Gospels talk about they were bringing spices to lay on Jesus. That would be like for us today, taking flowers and putting it on a grave. You see, they love Jesus. They respected Jesus. And so they're coming to pay their respects. They're not coming with expectations. They're not coming to the tomb that day being like, Jesus is risen. Yes, he's risen indeed. That's not what's on their hearts. No, there is grief. There is pain, there is sorrow as they consider Christ who hung on the cross and died. They didn't expect the resurrection, but that's what they found. That's what they found. That is the good news that they find as they come to the tomb. 
And the reason why I say at first they're coming with the expectation of the king of terrors is because throughout the Bible, the Bible uses a ton of different analogies to talk about death. And in the book of Job, Job 18, Job is sitting there, and if you know the Bible, Job is a man that had pain and suffering and loss in his life, and his friends are trying to counsel him and help him, and they're like, Job, you've lost a lot. You've suffered a lot. You've had a lot of pain, but there is a greater pain that's coming, and it's the king of terrors. So get your life right because the king of terrors is coming, which they're speaking of is death. Death. That is a scary picture. And that is where the first Easter began, with death on the mind. The reason why this is so important is because if you don't see this, then the resurrection is just one more happy thing you add to your calendar. But if you understand the depths of this truth, the resurrection breeds joy in your heart and in your life. They come to see the tomb. See, this is extremely practical for us. Coming face to face with the king of terrors is so practical for us. The Bible reminds us in multiple places that life is brief. Life is short. We've got to understand this truth. The book of James says that life is but a vapor that appears in the morning and is gone before midday. We are all going to die in spite of our instinctual drive to continue to live. We will all run out of days before we run out of ideas for those days. We're all going to run out of, of days before we run out of hope for those days. We're all going to run out of days before we run out of love for our loved ones in those days. This causes angst within our heart. This is why the Bible calls it the king of terrors. And you don't just have to take the Bible's word for it. Look at our lifestyle. Look at our life. Look at our culture. And we're screaming that we're afraid of death. That death is the king of terrors. We see that. We know that. I've got three kids, all 11 and under. And just think about how you talk about age when you're younger as opposed to the way you talk about age when you're older, right? Just look at your life. If you asked any of my kids, 11 and under, hey, how old are you? My son, who is five, he'd say, I'm five and three quarters. I'm five and three quarters, just so you know, I'm getting close to six. If you talk to my daughter who just celebrated her birthday like last month and she's 11, she'd be like, well, I'm almost 12 now, right? Like we're already talking about our next birthday. We're excited and then as we live a little bit more life, we get to our 20s, and we, we kind of stop talking about it at that point. You get to 21, and our culture talks about this as the prime of our life, right? 21 to 26. We talk about our real age. We don't round up or anything like that. But then, then you get to 26, and what happens at that point? You start to realize, man, I'm closer to 30 than I am to my 20s. And then you try to start slowing down your life just a little bit. I mean, our culture, in 2021, we spent $63 billion in anti-aging products. $63 billion with a B. From, from surgeries to serums, to cream, to injections, all of these things were trying to stop the decay of death in our life. We're trying to stop it. 
And all $63 billion of our investment is failing us. It's failing us. We can't beat it. This is just the reality of our life. Death is everywhere and we hate it. We hate the king of terrors. And we'll do things that we hate to try to push it off. We'll count calories, right? Why? To try to stay healthy. I don't think there's a whole lot of joy in factoring up numbers and counting calories as you go through the drive-thru at a fast food restaurant. Well, let me just say, if you're at a fast food restaurant, that's probably not the place you need to be counting calories in the first place. Just get it and keep going, right? We have seat belts and airbags to protect us. We lock our doors at night when we go to sleep. We have health insurance, medical care, all of that trying to fight off the death that ultimately waits for all of us. And if we can't fight it off, we'll just try not to think about it. We'll try to deny it. Our world tries to hide death so much. One of the things I love is the, the Puritan people, when they built cities, they would actually put the grave, uh, graveyard or the cemetery in the middle of the city. By the way, speaking of Puritans, those are where we got those prayers for the 40 days of prayer that you've been leading up to Easter. So kudos to all of you that have been able to pray through each one of those prayers that have made it to day 40. Today was a sweet prayer. If you haven't got a chance to do that, you can do that this afternoon. But these Puritans who wrote those prayers and would build different cities, they would put the, uh, the cemetery in the middle of the city. So no matter where you went, coming and going, you would be reminded that my life is brief and that death waits for us. This was to sober them up. And what we do in our culture is we try to deny it. There's a man, uh, an author, Ernest Becker, who wrote a book, who was a, was a published prize winning book called The Denial of Death. And then there, his man, main thesis of the book is that all of humanity is haunted by death. It is the mainspring of human activity. We try to run against the fatality of death that awaits us. And we overcome it by trying to deny it in some way that this is our final destiny. This is, this is what he wrote a whole book on that won a prize, that we deny it. Now, I know that some of you right now are thinking, man, that pastor is like, man, that's, he went dark really quick, right? This is Easter. He went dark really quick. And the reason why is because this is where the Bible takes us. And I can't apologize for this. You see, as a pastor, one of my jobs is to prepare you for that day. And so, yes, we talk about it. Matthew 28, the, the resurrection passage starts with Jesus being dead and people having sorrow in death. If we don't grasp this, if we don't grasp the reality that we will die for our sins, then the resurrection will mean nothing to you. Nothing to you. And the Bible, page after page, is trying to get us as humans to understand how we got here. How do we get to this point where our world is so broken and filled with sorrow and pain and that death awaits all of us? How do we get here? I was at a funeral this past week. And I've never been to a funeral and I've been to a lot of funerals. I've never been to a funeral and thought, yeah, this feels normal. Yeah, this is exactly how it's supposed to feel. No, every single funeral I go to, something feels broken. Something feels off, right, for all of us. And it's because this isn't the way it's supposed to be. We know that. This isn't the way that God created this world. Do you realize that? 
Death is not natural. God created this world and he made it perfect with no death and no decay and no suffering. That's how a good God created a good world. And then we as mankind, we rebelled against God. That's what sin is. Where you see what God's word says, what God has told you, and you say, nope, I'm not living that way. I'm living my way. I don't want to see you and love you and follow you. I want to be greater than you. And that's what happened. That's what sin is. When we refuse to bow our knee to the king of all kings. And when that happened, that shattered and broke this world. So when we say, at every funeral, this doesn't seem like this is the way it's supposed to be, it's because it's not. It's not supposed to be this way. This isn't the way that a good God created. It's because of our sin. It's because of our sin. The wages of our sin is death. That is why we die. That is why we decay, because of our sin. We're moving away from the God of life, and we're treasuring in our heart the sin that kills us. The Bible tells us over and over and over again, man, the wages of our sin is death. And think about it. Adam and Eve, who committed that first sin, God tells them, because of your sin, death is now going to enter in the world. And they didn't know what that looked like. They didn't know what that meant yet. The very first death that you ever find in the history of the world is when one brother murders another brother. Man, talk about a gruesome picture of what our sin does. Brings death into this world. And then for generation after generation after generation, what you find is people who die. People who die. And you fast forward all the way up to Matthew 27, and everybody knows that death is now in this world. And so when they see Jesus hanging on a cross with a spear put through his side, they're like, this is just one more man that's crushed by the king of terror. It's just one more man that, that has now died. He was a good man, and yet he's still a dead man. But praise be to God that Matthew doesn't stop in chapter 27. That there is a chapter 28. Matthew doesn't stop with Jesus hung on the cross and died for our sins. Though he had never sinned, he became sin on our behalf and bore our sin in our place. That's not where it ends. It ends where Christ reverses the curse of sin by defeating death. And then offering to all who would believe an invitation to find life and joy. And that's why the resurrection matters. That's why there's a joy that comes within us on Easter Sunday as we think that Christ has defeated death. Not because it's another good idea, but because it's a reality that you can experience if you place your faith in Jesus Christ. Dying on the cross for your sins and raising from the grave. And this leads us to the second king. The king of joy. This king is vastly different than the previous king. He is not the king of terror. He is the king of joy and the king of life. Look back at this passage in verse 8. It said that these ladies came to the tomb with sorrow. They came to the tomb looking to find a dead man. And then in verse 8, it says they have fear and great joy. 
They came with brokenness and despair, and they walked away from the resurrected Christ with great joy. Some of you maybe have walked in through this room today with a heaviness of heart and despair. Maybe your life was in the place that Josh's life is, that we just saw that video of, where you're like, man, I thought all I had was death in front of me. And now you look at the resurrection and you find great joy. Now, in verse 8, it does say that they had fear and great joy. But this is not the fear of terror anymore. This is the fear of all. The fear of all. See, they're starting to see and they're starting to realize that Jesus was not just a good moral teacher. He was not just a good man who loved and cared for other people, though he was those things and much more than those things. They're starting to see now that this is the king of all kings. This is the king of all life and the king of all joy. He is the one who holds the heavens up and controls and commands the stars above. That this is the God Almighty who has come from heaven to earth and has defeated death, the greatest fear of our lives. And as they see that, there's a fear that comes over them and they're shocked. Oh my goodness, look at this great and almighty king who did not come from heaven to earth to condemn us. He's not a foe that has come to condemn, but they find him resurrected as a friend who has come to save. This is what gives them great joy in their heart. Now there's another group of people that are there at the tomb on Easter Sunday. And they have fear, but they don't ever find joy. Look back at verse 4. Look at the soldiers in this passage. They see the resurrected Christ. They see the angel. They see the the empty tomb, the stone that is rolled back, and it leads them to act like dead men. The soldiers of all people should have been convinced of the power of Christ, but they don't believe that we know of, or at least a portion of them do not believe. Why? Why don't they believe? I believe for some of the exact same reasons why some of us don't believe in this room or don't believe as you watch online. You see, they don't find joy on Easter because their hearts love something more. They'd rather not have conflict in their life and they'd rather have more pleasure in their life. What they'll find is both of those fail them. Look in verses 12, and then we'll see in verse 14. In verse 12, it says that as they come and they tell the story of what's happened to the the leaders there, they give them a sum of money to be quiet. Now, if they believe this truth, they'd be like, there's no amount of money that's worth my soul. There's a guy who defeated death. I want to know about that guy. I want to believe in that guy. But in this time... They get this offer of money and they say, you know what, I'm going to choose this temporary fleeting pleasure over the king of all joy. They're pursuing pleasure and they're missing out on the king of all joy. And for many of us, that's the same thing. And it might not be money, but there's a pleasure that you're pursuing in your life. And that pleasure, whether it's sports or money or 
fame or whatever it might be, your job, all those things are keeping you from coming and finding the joy that your heart longs for. The joy that you think you're going to find in all these other areas that you will always come up empty. Because you cannot find it apart from the king of joy. And so they take the money and they choose the lie. And then in verse 14 tells us another reason why they may have not believed in Christ. It's because they didn't want any conflict in their life. They didn't want any resistance or rub, especially with their boss. And so they say, you know what? Take this money, tell this lie that disciples came while you were asleep and hid the body. And then when, you're, when the governor comes and he hears all of these things about the resurrection, then we'll satisfy him too, which means we'll pay him off as well. And so they're like, yeah, I don't want conflict with, with my, my boss. And if I believe in this Jesus guy, it's going to create conflict, and I just don't want it. So I'd rather avoid conflict in the temporary and not believe in him. I mean, they turn away. The ones that should have been more convinced than ever turn away for the fleeting pleasures of the world. Now, you might be here thinking, well, that's not the reason why I haven't believed in Christ. It's, it's, it's neither one of those. I'm afraid I can't even come to Christ. I am filled with so much failure and what you call sin, right? Like, I, I see that in my life. I feel the guilt on my heart and in my soul. There's no way I can come to Christ. Some of you are thinking, Ryan, if you just knew, if you knew what I did, you wouldn't be telling me about this Jesus guy that could forgive me. And my response to that is, you think too highly of your sin and too low of your Savior. He came to defeat sin, to wash it away, to, to, through the cross and through the, resurrection, to, through the resurrection, to remove it from the, as far as east is, from the west. This is what he came to do. And for you sitting here saying, there's no way he can forgive our sin, we look at the resurrection and he's like, no, I can forgive all sins. I can defeat all sins. I have the power. I have all authority to do this. And the resurrection should speak hope and comfort to your heart if you feel that way today. Man, I have failed and I have done so many things wrong and I've done them repetitively. There's no way that God can forgive me. Look at how Jesus responds to sinners. Look at this passage. In verse 10, Jesus tells, tells the ladies, hey, go. Go tell my disciples. Don't be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and they will see me there. I think this is one of the most beautiful statements that Christ has made. And we miss it because we read it so quickly. Think about this. What had the disciples just done a couple days earlier? They had denied Jesus. They had fled away from Jesus. They weren't there when he was crucified. The ladies were there. The disciples had scattered. They had run. They had forsaken Jesus. They did not believe that he would be resurrected from the dead. They're not there at the tomb. Jesus could have told the Marys, hey, go tell my disciples, be afraid. I'm coming. I'm coming. You didn't believe in me. You forsook me. I'm coming for you to prove that you're wrong. You're wrong. Jesus tells them, go tell my brothers. <sighs> my brothers. That's beautiful. These sinful men that had 
forsaken Jesus, Jesus doesn't look at him and be like, oh yeah, Mary's, tell them those lousy, no good sinners. You tell them, call them idiots. That's what I want you to tell them because they are. It's not what Jesus does. Jesus doesn't say, you know what, Mary's, you see me because you were there at the cross. You supported me to the very end. But you make sure to tell the disciples that they'll never see me. I'm resurrected. I've defeated the grave. They will never set eyes on me. They'll never see me again. I'm going to ascend to heaven, and they won't see me. But that's not what Jesus does. The king of all joy, the king of grace and mercy, says, no, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I know that you failed. Don't be afraid. You're my brothers, and you will see me again. All the resurrection preaches to us who are afraid to come to Christ in our failures. That he will meet you with love and grace and mercy and will exchange your guilt for joy. Your guilt for joy. Others of us would say, well, it's, it's none of those. Those aren't the reasons why I don't come to Christ. I don't come to Christ because I've just got doubts. There's so many hurdles of doubts in my life and that's why I haven't trusted in Jesus Christ. Did you see that so did the disciples? Look at verse 17. When they saw him, when the disciples see the resurrected Christ, they worshipped him, but some doubted. If you have doubts and you have struggles, you would make a great disciple. You see, we do not have to fully understand in order to fully believe. And you know what? I'll tell you this right now. You'll never fully understand for all of eternity. Our eight-ounce brains, because that's how much they weigh roughly, are not going to understand an eternal, infinite God. It's never going to happen. So if you're waiting for a time in your life where you're going to understand everything about God, then you will never believe. You'll never believe. And, I, and listen to me. I want to be clear. Jesus isn't, and, and neither am I, calling you to a blind step of faith to just believe. I love this definition of what faith is. Faith is when the unexplainable meets the undeniable. When the unexplainable meets the undeniable, and that's what happened on Resurrection Sunday. Jesus didn't just tell them to, to blindly believe. There are so many historical facts that point to this truth, and there's so many facts that we find within the Bible that point to the, the fact that the tomb was empty. Nobody argues, nobody argues that Jesus was still in the tomb. Everybody understands, both skeptics and believers, that the tomb was empty on the first Easter Sunday. The debate over is, why was the tomb empty? And how was the tomb empty? But the tomb was empty, so you've got to do something with that. You've got to decide what to do with that. So the way that they try to cover it up at the first Easter is, we'll just tell people that the disciples came in and and stole the body away while you were asleep. Now let me speak to a couple of those things. One, Roman law said is if you were set as a station to guard a person or to guard something and you lost that item, that it forfeit your life. I don't know about you, but if I knew my life was on the line, I'm not nodding off in front of the tomb. <laughs> these, these soldiers who are waiting there know their life is on the line, that I've got to stand here and guard this tomb so that nobody would come and steal the body. They knew that. But the way they cover it up is, we'll, we'll just tell them that you fell asleep. Which, 
I think the greatest miracle would be, if that's true, how you remove a giant stone in front of this tomb without waking up the guy sitting in front of it. Like, how is that possible? See, the tomb is empty. The tomb is empty. And if the disciples had stolen it, if the disciples had come and somehow magically rolled the tomb back and not woken up, woken up the guards that were there and stole the body, I, I can tell you this right now. They, some of them, one of them, would have produced the body at some point. They would have said, no, 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 no. I don't want to die for this. The body's over here. This is where we hit it and we move on. Some of you may know this man named Chuck Colson. Uh, sadly, he was a part of the Watergate scandal. And he tells a story that uh, the night when they realized that everything was about to break and come into light with the Watergate scandal, that there in Washington, 12 guys gathered together and they said, how are we going to cover this up? How are we going to spin this? How are we going to change this so that all of this detail doesn't come out and people find out about it? And Chuck Colson said, after we met for a couple of hours coming up with a plan, within 30 minutes of that meeting ending, two of the men had already called and made plea deals to get out of the trouble that they were about to be in. And though all those guys were going to be facing was jail. The disciples who have already showed us that they're weaklings, they've already ran and fled when Christ was being arrested, now they're going to be thrown into prison, beaten, and ultimately martyred for this. At least one of them would have to be like, hey, jigs up, I'd rather be out of prison, I'd rather not be beaten and killed. Yeah, we hid the body over here, right? But they don't. They're willing to die for the very thing that they ran from earlier. Why? Because something happened. When the tomb was empty, they saw the resurrected Christ, and it changed their life. It changed them. God has not called us for blind faith. Study the evidence that's before us. Research it. Know it. I mean, you had eyewitnesses that saw the resurrection of Christ. Even these ladies that come to the tomb that day, they were there on the Friday when Christ was crucified. It says that they were there. They heard him speak his last words. They heard him say, it is finished. They heard him breathe his last. They saw the spear go in to his side. They saw all of that. It even tells us in Matthew 27 that after Christ has died and his body's been taken down, that they followed his body and they followed the people that were putting him into the tomb and they set outside of the tomb. There's no mix-up of tombs here. There's no confusion of what's happened. These eyewitnesses saw it, and then they stand there now seeing the resurrected Christ. And then Paul will later say in the book of uh, 1 Corinthians that Christ, when he was raised on the third day, he appeared to more than 500 people at one time, most of which are still alive today. Even Critical scholars would say that 1 Corinthians was written about 20 years after the death of Christ, roughly. And what Paul is saying here is, guys, I'm telling you the resurrection happened. I'm telling you that Christ defeated death and reversed the curse of our sin. I'm telling you, and if you don't believe me, if you don't believe my testimony, then go and talk to these people who are still alive. Go and talk to these people who are still alive today, and they'll tell you they saw the resurrected Christ. Now, many of us, Many of us say, I just, I have so many doubts. I just, I can't believe. We use that as an excuse not to research and to study whether this is true or not. But I, I would propose you can say, if heaven, an eternal destination, and hell, and an eternal destination is in the balance, 
and your soul is in the middle, isn't that worth at least a portion of your life to study and to learn whether this is true or not? Isn't it not worth the time and the sacrifice and investment that you have put in to study the, the evidences and to see, is this true? Man, eternity is far too long. And our life is far too short not to at least bring our doubts before the resurrected king. To search the evidences out. What you'll find is many people, as they have done this, they have found that this is true. Lee Strobel has an amazing book. Setting out to prove that Christianity was wrong, and now he believes all of these facts pointing, all these evidences pointing to the king of joy defeating death. Now, Jesus would say, bring your failures, bring your doubts, bring your insecurities, all these things, bring them to me, and I will welcome you and forgive you of all of those things and give you great joy through the resurrection. He would offer us great joy. Now, we need to personally believe in Jesus Christ. This is a step that nobody else can make for you. God does not have grandkids, okay? He only has kids. So your parents' faith does not count for you, okay? You have to trust and believe in God, and you become a child of God. It's very personal, but it's not meant to be private. It's not meant to be private. The king of all joy comes here, and he shows who he is. He talks to his doubting disciples, and then he looks at them, and he says, Now go, therefore, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He said, this is personal. You believe in me, and you find life, absolutely. But it is not meant to be private. Don't you stuff it down. Don't become a cul-de-sac. You are a conduit of this great joy, for there are people that need to hear this truth. And one of the very first things Jesus says is, go tell others and then display your faith by being baptized. Baptism does not save you. What baptism does is it's a proclamation that you believe that Christ was buried in the grave and then rose from the grave. And you too are being buried, uh, spiritually speaking, into the water, coming out of the water, saying, now I am made new because of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is a public statement that you proclaim. You look at this, this cannot be private. Go, therefore, and make disciples, not just of the neighborhoods, but of all nations. Church, family, be encouraged that people in this church are doing that. In the little over four years that I've been here, we have launched out anywhere from one to three families every year to go on the farm mission field. We have people that are in Asia and Central America and South America and Africa. I mean, we have them across the globe. Why in the world would they do that? Why would these people that were just like you, sitting in seats just like you're sitting in, leave the comforts of our world, our America, right, and go over to some third world countries and some harder countries and pour out their lives there? Because they believe in what Jesus said. They believe that there are people around the world who do not know that he has defeated death, that he has defeated the king of terrors, and they need to know. They need to know their sins can be forgiven. So Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations. Guys, we have to go. We have to share this good news, good news for all people, anyone who would believe. Now, I know some of you may be come to church um, sporadically, 
Some of you aren't believers online or in this room, and you hear me talk about this and believing in the gospel and finding joy and trusting in Jesus Christ. And you think, in your mind, this is what I hate about Christians. They're always trying to convert us. And if you're thinking that, what I would say to you is, you're right. You're right. But could you at least understand why we do that? Penn Gillette from Penn and Teller, these illusionists, that pretty famous guys that travel around, do all these different uh, illusions. He's an atheist and a very staunch atheist, Penn is. And in an interview, um, or actually he's sitting at a desk in front of a camera, you can watch it on YouTube. He says this, he says, a lot of my atheist friends, they get mad at Christians when they share the gospel with them. But Penn said, but I can respect it. What I don't understand is people who believe in heaven and hell and judgment and do not try to persuade me to believe it. How do you believe, how much do you have to hate somebody, this is his words, how much do you have to hate somebody to believe that there is life and joy to be had and then not share it with them? This is an atheist speaking to believers. If we truly believe this, that Christ has risen from the grave, that we have to go and tell the world of the good news of Jesus. And for those of us who have believed in Jesus, then we have great joy. And for those of you that haven't, I'm not here to force you. I'm not trying to pressure you, but I do believe that you deserve to know the truth so you can decide. So you can decide what your future will be. And for those of us who have trusted in Jesus Christ, the joy that the king of all creation gives us, the king of all kings, the king of joy, this is what he gives us through the resurrection. Those of us that have trusted and believed in Jesus, we get to stand here today and celebrate and sing the good news of the resurrection. Why? Because our guilt no longer has the last word. Our guilt and our shame of our, stin- our sin, the stain that our sin has put in our life has been washed white as snow because of the death and the resurrection. The empty tomb means that the brokenness that we see and feel in our world does not get the last word. It doesn't. We live in a world of unfair things, unjust things happen, and yet... The king of all joy brings healing to this broken world. And we see that, a glimpse of that in the resurrection. The empty tomb gives us joy. The resurrection gives us joy because it means pain will not have the last word in our life. Our world can be described as a, a veil of tears. We watch everything we love eventually fall apart. But the resurrection shows us that pain will not have the last word. Through Christ, we are being redeemed to a place where there is No more fears and no more tears and no more crying. Pain doesn't get the last word. Despair will not get the last word because of the resurrection. The empty tomb proves that despair will not get the last word. These ladies show up to the tomb with deep despair and sorrow. And they see the resurrected Christ and then they have great joy. Despair will not get the last word. And the empty tomb means that death, death will not have the last word. The one that we fear so much will not have the last word because Christ died and rose from the grave and extends eternal life to all who would believe. I love how Billy Graham says it. He said one time, there's a day that's coming where you will hear that Billy Graham is dead. He said, don't you believe it. Don't believe it. I'll be more alive than ever. I will just have changed addresses. 
You see, the king of all joy crushes the king of terror through the cross and the resurrection. All glory be to God above. Bow your heads with me. If you want to accept the invitation from the king of joy today, then I want you to pray to him from the silence of your heart now. If you don't know what to pray, then I would encourage you to look on the screen. You'll see a, a prayer on there that you can kind of walk through in your mind and in your heart to pray that Jesus would give you life and life everlasting. You may have come today with the fear in your heart and Jesus wants to exchange it for great joy. Pray that prayer today. But know this, it's not the magical words that you see on the screen that are going to save you. It's the mighty grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that will save you. The only reason that we can pray this prayer is because of what Christ has done for us. So may your hope rest in him who died in your place and was risen from the grave. May your rest be there. Pray this prayer and know that the king of all joy will save you. He won't turn you away in your doubts. He's not going to shun you for your failures. He's going to heal you. He's going to forgive you. Would you come to him now? Lord Jesus, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your love. And we pray thanking you that it's working in our hearts and our lives even right now. I ask that you would also be working in our hearts this week, that we would be filled with great joy. Lead us through your grace and your mercy and your power this week to share this good news. The gospel is personal, but it is not private. And so, Lord, would you use us to share the good news of the King of Joy for others to believe. It's in your great name we pray. Amen. Church family, let's stand now. Let's sing to the King of Joy.